0: we have a long list of announcements this evening. Announcement number one is to pray for dry weather for the men's camp out. Announcement number two is we're going to have our Christmas, church Christmas lunch on December 11th. So I have those two dates, the uh, October 14th, 15th, and December, December 11th on your calendar. That's it for announcements. It's a banner day. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, Purpose for doing this is always to be spiritually prepared for our study of the Word. Scripture says that we are to walk by the Spirit. Again and again, this is emphasized that we are to be in right relationship with the Lord, abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, walking in the truth. But when we sin, we go in the other direction and we walk in darkness. And we are no longer abiding and walking by the Spirit, so we have to recover through confession. It's called cleansing in the Scripture. Uh, James uses an interesting phrase, a very uh, vivid phrase. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. And that's the same idea. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord through confession of sin. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our fathers, we look at the world around us, often we can focus on so many details that are discouraging, that seem overwhelming. We look at circumstances and situations. We see the trends in the world. We see the uh, things that are taking place in terms of the radical, uh, the the development and encroachments of radical Islam, especially through unrestrained immigration taking place in Europe, as well as here in the U.S., and we know that all of this manifests an even greater spiritual conflict and spiritual battle. And our spiritual life is just one small dimension of that battle. And we need to learn to walk by faith and to trust in you because we know that uh, this is a long war, that you will be victorious in the end. But in the interim, there will be many, um, many opportunities to trust you and engage the enemy and individual circumstances and that the principles are always the same to trust you to walk by the spirit to claim promises and to relax in your provision and your protection father we trust that in this election coming up that we can see a a restoration a movement back it took many decades to get here and will take many decades to recover And even though we don't have a great slate of candidates at the top, there are many at other levels that are important races and need to be won. Father, we pray that you would continue to raise up men and women who know the truth and understand the real issues and that uh, they can make a difference in the direction of this country. And we pray for churches and pastors that you would raise up uh, people who want to know the truth and pastors who want to teach the truth. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We're starting this evening in one of my favorite chapters. And for many people, this is one of their favorite uh, stories and episodes in the Old Testament. And that's the story of David and Goliath. And if you've been a Christian for very long, even if you haven't, you have probably heard something about uh, this this singular one-on-one battle that took place in approximately 1,030 or 1,040 B.C., and that this is what brings David to prominence. But there's a lot of different lessons and a lot of different things that are going on here, and I just want to focus on the first 11 chapters which introduce the battle for us tonight as well as the main antagonist who is Goliath of Gath. And it's interesting how much time is spent in the text telling us about Goliath, and the reason is, is because the writer wants us to understand that this is an overwhelming force, an impossible opponent to defeat other than by the power of God, and often in our lives, we meet similar situation. We think that we face a circumstance or situation where there's no hope. There's nothing that that can be done, and we can easily yield to depression and defeatism and discouragement, but as always, we have to understand the principle that is illustrated in this chapter, which is that the battle is the Lord's. Just by way of introduction, I want to remind you of a couple of verses and principles in the New Testament, which give us a sort of a framework for understanding what is going on here in this battle. This is a real battle. It took place at a specific location, which the writer is. It takes great pains to describe. This isn't just some, some myth. It's not a legend. It's not just a nice story. It's not a parable. It is a real situation that occurred in, in space-time history but it is a manifestation of a broader cosmic conflict in the angelic conflict. Now, in the New Testament, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10.4 that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, he goes on to describe what those strongholds are, that ultimately that has to do with the thought life. But these weapons of our warfare deal with the ultimate issue of spiritual conflict. But often, when we are involved in a battle, we have to recognize that there are things that we also do that are are of secondary or tertiary significance. And let me give you an illustration. If we're going to go into battle... And this is talking about the spiritual life that, that ultimately we have to understand the spiritual skills that I often teach. And we have to understand how to, how to implement them. Sunday morning, I talked about the problem that we have in this country with with, with our political situation. We have political situations, we have social situations, we have uh, elements of our culture that are and uh, people and groups that uh, are screaming about uh, being victims of injustice. And this has always been been true. There's a vocalization that's going on today that is uh, distressing, because the narrative is being recouched, and 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 developed within a Marxist framework, which is as anti-biblical as it can be. And part of Marxism is the idea that we can have a utopia and that we can have perfection uh, in this world. And that runs completely contrary to what scripture says. The fact that we live in a corrupt world doesn't excuse injustice, but it makes us realize that we can't create a utopia. And that's at the heart of progressive thought which not only characterizes the left it characterizes much of the middle the problem with the republicans is they're not conservatives they're progressives and they've all bought into a human viewpoint philosophy and so we're engaged in a battle in two levels we're engaged in the battle at one level where we are to go to the voting booth and we are to vote we're to become knowledgeable we're involved in the battle at other levels where it's important to uh, discuss, engage, inform, educate our representatives because they have, if we don't do it, who will? But that's not the ultimate battle. That's only one lower-level dimension of the battle. The real battle is a spir- spiritual battle, and that's the kind of thing that, uh, that we have to engage a different way. That involves spiritual weapons, it involves using the faith rest drill, promises of God, uh, things of that nature. So when Paul is talking here, he's not talking in a sort of a mystical sense. He's dealing with the fact that there are there's a spiritual dimension to the battle, there are also physical dimensions to the battle. So he's talking about spiritual dimensions, and he says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Now, the Greek word there for carnal is the Greek word sarkikos, which is an, um, uh, a form or based on the word sarks for flesh or the sin nature. So we don't fight the battle based on the tools that come from our sin nature. And this is what I was talking about on Sunday morning. And you look at a lot of the techniques that are out there, a lot of it's just street theater, but a lot of this is, is uh, we see this in athletes who uh, don't want to stand for the national anthem, okay? Uh, that's that's not a biblical tool that violates a number of biblical principles and it is it, it just creates division. And takes away, I mean, most people don't even know why they're not standing. They just know that they have taken, they, they've created a, a position, they're not going to stand for the national anthem, and so nobody cares what their real issue is. They're just recognizing that what they're doing is wrong and a slap in the face for our country. See, that's the kind of thing that tells you right away that this is a product of the flesh. It is a sin nature-based tool. There are other ways and other environments and other venues to do the right thing the right way. Paul faces the same kind of problem in Galatia in a, in a spiritual sense, that they were trying to lead the spiritual life through wrong means. Remember, a right thing has to be done a right way for it to be right. A right thing done a wrong way is wrong, so you can be moral without the spirit and it's wrong you can seek justice on a basis that's not on the word of god not from the word of god and it's wrong and the result of that is is going to cause division that's what what paul gets to as i pointed out sunday morning in galatians chapter 5 that the works of the flesh become evident and so if you see uh, those characteristics of hatred and enmity and division that, that it's, it's not the result of doing the right thing the right way. It's a result of maybe doing the right thing the wrong way or a wrong thing the wrong way. And this is what the Galatians were doing why Paul says, you got started in the spirit, having begun in the spirit, you trusted in Christ, faith alone in, in Christ alone. And now you're trying to grow up and mature by doing it according to the flesh, You're using the weapons of fleshly warfare. You're using the modus operandi of psychology, of sociology, of political theater in order to achieve uh, those ends. So that's wrong. The solution is, as Christians, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Spiritual goals must be achieved through spiritual means. And when we are a Christian, we always have to do it the biblical way. It doesn't matter what. I remember one time having a conversation where the discussion was on the the potential value of of humanistic psychology. The comment was made, well, some of that helps because it gets people functional. And my response was the goal of the Christian life is not to help people function apart from the Word of God. The goal of every Christian is to help people realize they can't function at all apart from the Word of God. And that it's only on the basis of the Word of God that we can not only function, but we can have real joy and happiness and peace. And so for a Christian to opt for second best is to go at is to be a friend of the world and at enmity uh, with God. That's part of spiritual conflict. Ephesians six. It's another key passage. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That's where our strength lies. This is what we're going to see in David. David comes to the battle because he faces it with a divine viewpoint framework. He understands what the real issues are he doesn't show up without his sling and his stones and his staff the mystic would say i'm just going to trust god fold their hands and close their eyes in prayer and expect somehow god's going to miraculously intervene the rationalist or the empiricist is going to say well i have to figure out a way to use some skill, some technique, some some and put their trust in the technique, the skill, the psychology, the sociological principle, something like that, rather than in trusting God. David shows up recognizing there's there's two issues here. Ultimately there's the spiritual issue and he says the battle is the Lord's. But he shows up with a sling and with five stones and with his staff. You're dealing with two areas that have to be uh, two areas of engagement. So ultimately, what gives significance to the sling and the stones is the understanding that we are doing it in the power of God's might, and that ultimately the battle wasn't against Goliath. The battle was against what Goliath was a part of that is he is just a human agent within the framework of God's I mean God's enemy Satan who is seeking to destroy his people Israel so we always have to remember it's not the people that we are in, engaged in in the battle the battle isn't with the muslim who lives next door it's with Satan who energizes and empowers uh, islamic theology and islamic religion that that we we have this tension we have somebody who's a potential national enemy but we're to love our enemy and we are to engage them with the gospel if every muslim in america converted to christ we wouldn't have a problem that's the ultimate solution and so we need to understand that that what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6, uh, 12 and 13, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not the ultimate enemy. Now, sure, it may be an enemy at some point, but it's not the ultimate enemy. That's what he's talking about. We are really wrestling as a power behind them, which are the prince, the demons, the principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, the spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. So that's a framework for helping us understand what's going on with this battle with David and Goliath. So, a couple of points. Goliath was a real flesh and blood enemy. He, repre- he was the representative of the Philistines who were the avowed enemy of God's people, Israel, and who were being used by Satan to wipe Israel off the planet and to prevent them from living on the basis of God's promise in terms of the land. Uh, So Goliath represented all that opposed God, all that opposed his will, his plan, and his people. Second thing is that more often than not, when we face the opposition, whether it's national, corporate, political, or personal, it always appears to be overwhelming. Overwhelming there doesn't appear to be any hope at all. Uh, I was thinking this last week something came up, I was thinking about William Wilberforce. As William Wilberforce worked within the framework of the parliament in England to end the slave trade, it took him about 30 years. It took a lot of work engaging people but ultimately it was the prayer support and the work of other believers who supported him and his work uh, in that process. And it's sometimes difficult as believers not to look at those who represent the other side as, as the real enemy. Third point is that though there are things that we do on a personal or a physical level, Ultimately, we have to subsume everything under the plan of God. We have to understand that just as David picked up the five stones and the sling, he also avoided the rational and empirical solution that Saul offered, which was to put on Saul's armor and to take Saul's weapons and go into battle. He also avoided the other option of of mysticism and just... Uh, sort of praying and expecting God to miraculously change the circumstances. He did what he was trained to do at one level, and spiritually he did what he was trained to do at that level. And so finally, we must always remember that whether the adversities that we face are small or large, whether they have to do with our own personal health or incapabilities in, in capabilities or whether they have to do with things that are vastly beyond our control, the battle is always the Lord's, and how we function on the battlefield is always determined by the Word of God. So, as we start 1 Samuel 17, I want to just mention a couple of things that are usually brought up um, in reference to this. This is a very long uh, chapter. There are 58 verses in this in this chapter uh, describing this this event. And actually, within the manuscript tradition of the Old Testament, there are a number of different versions. The Septuagint version is much shorter than the Masoretic text, and it, it's 46 percent shorter. It's missing. Um, 27 out of the 58 verses, so that's a very different tradition. And there are critics who come along and say, "See, this is just shows that the Bible can't be from the uh, from from God because there's all these contradictions in the story, and and you have these different uh, manuscripts. Some are longer stories, some are shorter, uh, and that just the problem here is that they come with a presupposition that it's not the Word of God, and so as soon as they see something that, that appears to be a contradiction, then they just assume that it is without doing the necessary spade work academically to show that ultimately everything fits together all when when if you read or listen to some people you watch something on the history channel or one of the other channels dealing with David and Goliath they'll point out these discrepancies but the reality is that all these discrepancies are pretty superficial they don't really uh show any inherent problems or contradictions in the text if you're willing to uh deal with the text just as you would any other piece of literature, and there there are explanations for every alleged c- contradiction. Um, so the Masoretic text, though, seems to be the best and does not have any real inherent problems to it. second thing is that Many of the many people, even a number of evangelicals are influenced by liberal critics of the Bible, and they argue that there 's a lot of contradictions in the account and some of <clears throat> Some of this seems to be that that things that are said in chapter seventeen uh, almost appear as if it 's totally disconnected from what we just studied in chapter sixteen that David has been Uh, anointed king, that David has been brought to the palace, that he has this relationship with Saul. And so we see in uh, the end of chapter uh, 16, uh, David came to Saul and stood before him. And he, that is uh, Saul, loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer so you would think that well they've got this close relationship but that's not necessarily so when you look at how things were done in the ancient world david would have been one among a number of servants to saul and that doesn't mean that saul really paid a whole lot of attention uh, to david now, David, at this stage, I believe, is somewhere in the area of uh, 16, 17, maybe 18 years of age. He's not old enough to be in the army, as we'll see, but he is not the little kid that cartoons often per- uh, portray and children's books portray. He um, he will say, when Saul says, well, what what kind of credentials do you have to do, go into battle with Goliath? David says... And if you translate it idiomatically, he, he's just talking about his what he did when he was a shepherd—that he protected his father's sheep from the incursions of of the mountain lions and the bears. And if you read the account, it says he would grab the uh, mountain lion by the beer, beard and then beat him to death with his rod. Anybody want to volunteer for that job? Okay he he had uh he had real courage but he had strength and he had skill and that's that tells us that that the musculature that he had was not the musculature of a prepubescent young man a boy uh he is has a well developed uh musculature and can and he has physical strength he's not doing that in a in any kind of miraculous way uh that just his 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 background, his training, so he's fairly strong. Um, so David would be with other armor bearers. And as he comes, then we have in verse 22, Saul sent to Jesse and says, let David stand before me for he's found favor in my sight. So he gets his father's permission. And then it was, I think verse 23 at the end of the chapter gives a sort of a summary of what goes on through this period of time that whenever this uh, evil spirit that was sent by God under his permissive will to uh, bring this uh, fear and uh, anxiety to Saul that David then would play the harp and and Saul would become refreshed and and uh, the distressing spirit would depart from him so that's sort of a summary statement At the same time, it's not denied that this is going on in chapter 17. In verse 15, we're told that David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he's going back and forth. And during this time, for however long it went on, uh, Saul's not paying a whole lot of attention to this kid. He's not on his radar. He's just being taken, would be taken care of by whoever's in charge, of Saul's servants. Now, another thing that we see in this uh, that's often brought up as a contradiction is that there are uh, discrepancies in the biblical accounts as to who actually killed Goliath. In 1 Samuel seventeen fifty we're told, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. And then in 2 Samuel 21, 19, the text says, again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elchanan, the son of Jareh Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. But in the That's in the New King James. In the Hebrew, the brother of isn't there. It just reads, killed Goliath the Gittite. So there it looks like Elhanan is said to be the one to kill Goliath. The reason they supplied the brother of in the New King James Version is because they get this from 1 Chronicles 25, that there was war with the Philistines. Elhanan, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath. So there is evidence of a textual corruption in 2 Samuel 21 Second Samuel uh, twenty one nineteen. First and Second Samuel has more textual problems than any other book in the Old Testament, and so it takes a lot of work to go through these particular things and uh, and check each one out and evaluate them. So based on First Chronicles twenty verse five, there's no contradiction. David killed Goliath, and Elchanan killed uh, his brother. His brother Lami, now, as we get into this episode in this story of david and and Goliath uh, Goliath comes out and he is as acting as a champion. This is the same kind of thing you had this same time period uh, and even a little later, but in the, in the Trojan Wars where you have uh one uh, a champion coming out from one army who wants to do one on um, uh, one one on one battle with someone else, for example, in uh, homer 's Iliad, you have Menelaus and Paris coming out to to do battle. You have uh, similar kinds of things in the Egyptian history of Sinuhe, and and you also have it in the battle between Marduk and Tiamat in the Babylonian. Uh, enuma elish the point is this was typical of some ways battle was conducted in the ancient world so you had one champion coming out and when goliath comes out he attacks israel on a spiritual and theological basis he insults them by saying that they're going to become servants of the philistines the implication is god can't protect you uh, you're going to become our servant, whereas God had promised this land there in Judah. The the At the opening in verse, uh, verse 1, we're told the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soho, which belongs to Judah. So this is the land God promised to Israel. That's important to understand. They're on land promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. This is... Uh, israel 's land that they have a right right to own, so uh, by claiming that they 're going to become servants to Philistines as, and their gods is an attack on uh, the God of Abraham Isaac, and jacob he 's also attacking uh, saul he 's completely demoralized saul saul 's functioning like a like a coward he is not standing up he is failing in his role as the king of Israel to protect the nation. That's the one role of national government is to provide for the security of a nation, and that is where our nation is failing us by letting all of these immigrants in. It's, that, that's not a statement that it's opposed to immigration. It's a statement that for any nation to survive, they have to control the inflow of immigrants. This is what Israel does. They set up these incredible absorption centers where they train over a period of a year. They train the uh, olim, that's the immigrants that come in, and they teach them Hebrew. They teach them job skills. They don't have to do that much for olim that come from France or that come from uh, the U.S. or some other place in Europe because they've got education and skills. But if you're dealing with the Ethiopians, you're dealing with Yemenites, you're dealing with uh, some who are coming from the lowest possible levels of, of poverty in Ukraine or Russia— then you have to educate them and you have to give them skills and within a year they will have them in a position where they can get a job and they can be productive and they will find work for them and then they will provide uh, places where they can live initially and eventually teach them to live on their own. You have to control the immigration; otherwise, it's going to uh, you're going to destroy yourself. It's just like you can be helpful to people who are homeless, but if you open the doors of your house and say let every homeless person come in, next thing you know, you'll be homeless, and they will have destroyed your house. And you just extrapolate that to the national level. It's not that you're we're against immigra- immigrants it's that we're against uncontrolled immigration that is destructive of our culture and what we one thing we have to understand i was reading about the prime minister of hungary the other day he's one of the very few politicians in in europe that recognizes that that islam is completely contradictory and and cannot coexist with christianity at all and to allow islam to come in in a, this unrestrained manner is is a way of committing suicide uh, very quickly because their religious goal is to destroy Western civilization and to destroy Christianity. And that cannot be ignored, but we have too many political leaders who, for a variety of reasons, just want to deny this, ignore it, or act like it's it's not there. And it makes one think that perhaps what they really want to do is simply destroy Western civilizations, we know, thinking that somehow that is going to bring them more money and more power. It's always about money or power. So um, the the Philistines were seeking to uh, keep Israel from expanding and... Uh, taking care of the uh, and, and and fully exploiting the land that God had given to them, uh, which they had failed to do since since the conquest, and so this is an attack on on um, God and it's attack on God's leader Saul, who's failing to um, to secure the nation. And what we're going to see is this comes uh, in terms of the story right after David is anointed to be the next king. And David understands both the theology behind this, that going back to the Abrahamic covenant and the land promise, and he understands that this is the role of the government is to prevent uh, and to protect the nation from its enemies and to prevent the destruction of the the nation. So that's background. Now, when we look at the text itself in verse 1, it gives us the setting. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. So this is an invasion of the territory that is controlled by Israel. They want to take it over again. We've already seen this uh, before under under uh, Samuel. Uh, we saw the defeat at the Battle of Aphek, and now uh, this is happening again. The Philistines are their consistent enemy, and in a a typological way the philistines represent satan they are empowered by satan they they understand that it's their gods against the god of israel that this is a religious conflict in the same way just to make another obvious application islam understands the same thing that it is their god allah against the god of the christians and the jews And whether anybody here or in this nation or in Europe understands that is irrelevant, that's how they look at it. They understand a spiritual dimension to the conflict, and that's when they say Allahu Akbar, that doesn't mean God is great. It means Allah is greater. Greater than who? Greater than your God. It is a it is a theological claim, and they're constantly asserting these kinds of things. If you if we could go into the Dome of the Rock, you can look this up on the internet. If you go into the Dome of the Rock, which is the um, a mosque that's built over what is considered to be the foundation stone on the Temple Mount, to where the Holy of Holies was. If you, if you stand across the Kidron Valley, as some of you have done with me, and you get at a level and you look, look west, you can see that the Dome of the Rock is higher than the domes on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It is a physical statement that Islam is superior to the cross. If you go inside the Dome of the Rock you will find that all the, the, the Arabic that's written inside or the verses from the Quran that are stating that Jesus is a creature, that Jesus is just a prophet, that Jesus is not the Son of God, the, the, that entire dome is a, uh, a theological statement that Islam is superior to Christianity. And yet, because people are relatively ignorant or they don't want to create a problem, it just stays there. But it is an affront. To, it is a blasphemy against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that that sits there. It is a theological statement. So the Philistines understand this. They gather together for battle and the writer takes pains to, to identify the location. He gives us the setting. So what I want to do now is take you through a couple of different maps, help you orient. I know some folks are not map-oriented. I could just sit and look at maps all day long, uh, but maps are important to understand what is taking place here in a broader sense and is also in a narrow sense. So I'm going to use a couple of different maps. Uh, because they, they summarize and point out what's going on. And then I want to show you some pictures of, of this particular area. So we're told that the Philistines gather at a place called Soko. This is Soko Ridge, which is uh, on the southeast of the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah runs east-west. Um, and they encamp between Soko and Azika at Ephesdamim. So here's the first map. Uh, This is a broader map. Over here we have Jerusalem, which, of course, is still in the uh, hands of the Jebusites, just south of Jerusalem. So this gives you a little scale. This is only about two and a half to 3 miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It's very close. This is Bethlehem. This is where David is from. Uh, Jesse uh, has his flocks out somewhere in this area. And so this all this ter- area would be very familiar to David. So they're not that far from home. They're probably about 15 to 20 miles away from Bethlehem, if that, probably only about 15 miles. Um, there's a valley that runs east-west here between Azika here and Soco Ridge uh, here on the south, and the battle is going to take place in this valley. And then these purple arrows show, uh, with the defeat of the Philistines, they flee to their cities of Gath. Goliath is from Gath. That's his hometown. Uh, Gath and, and Ekron. All of this is very close, as you'll see from the pictures. Here's a, another map, a topographical map. Zoomed in a little closer. The red circle on the far right uh, shows the location of Bethlehem, which is due east of the valley here. If you look closely, you can see there's a light blue line that runs along here from east to west. This is the Eli Valley, and right here where this red star is, it does a dog leg, and that's Azika, which is mentioned in the text, and then it continues its, its easterly run and then uh, just north of, of Soko. Uh, Gath is here due west, and then this Kibet-Kiaf is a a, a tell, and that's probably part of the area where the Israelites were encamped. Now that map's a little dark. This lightens it up a little bit. Um, These are the modern highways. This is the highway that goes back to Bethlehem. Uh, Just above that, the Valley of Elah in the lower right-hand corner. The red uh, tent there represents the Philistine camp. The blue tent up here represents the Israelite camp. And Azekah is just just to the west. So when we're looking at it in the pictures, we'll be standing right in the stream bed that runs through the Valley of Elah, and you'll be looking from here directly toward Azekah to the northwest. Uh Soko is located there they've got a remains it was a, a, a an ancient settlement this is the if you've been to Israel with me this is where the Sternbach vineyard is located we've gone there for a uh, to visit the vineyard cuz that's uh, uh Amos's buddy uh, Gadi. they were in the uh, paratroopers together and we've been there and it's a great location because you're up on the ridge where the, near where the Philistines encamped, and you can overlook uh, the valley. Okay, here's a good aerial shot. We are looking. We're looking north. Right down here in the lower right, this is Soko Ridge. And if you uh, remember, along this highway, there's uh, like a gas station and some other buildings there. That's where Ephesdamine was located. That's where the Philistines would have encamped on this Soko Ridge. Below that, just to the north, is the Elah Valley. You follow it with this white line. To the northwest is Ezekiel. This is a large a large uh, uh, hill, and, and it's a, actually a tell because there was a settlement there. This ridge line here, just north of the valley, is where the Israelite armies would have encamped. And this white area here. Is the area of uh, of that archaeological find? It's located there, so that gives you a good aerial overview. Here's another look uh, back, to- looking back toward where we just were. Here's FS Damim. This is Soko Ridge, Elah Valley in between, and then this hill here is where the Israelite army was. So the Philistines were here, the Israelites were on this ridge, and we're on on, on Azica. Uh, looking at it uh from from uh, looking towards the southeast, then in this picture, this is a, a zika, and this is Gath, so that gives you an idea of how close we're talking about here, probably about five miles away. Goliath is from from gath, and I think I have about two more pictures here's another aerial uh, f s Damim. Uh, Soco Ridge along here. This was the area where the Philistines encamped. This was where the uh, Israelites encamped. And probably back this way is Bethlehem and then uh, then Jerusalem. Again, another good overview. This is all this area is where the Israelites were over on this ridge, the Philistines, and then the valley in between. Now we're going to go down into the valley Right down here, and we're going to be looking towards Soko back this way. And so that's what we would look like. This is a, a field that is uh, planted and harvested, and this is looking at, at Soko Ridge, and the vineyard we've gone to is up here uh, at the end of that ridge. And this is looking straight down the valley Soko Ridge on the right, the Israelite encampment would have been on the left. And we would always... I tried to find it. Somewhere I've got a video, but we always have a little script and we have everybody act out the uh, whole uh, scene with David and Goliath, and that's always a little little fun to do that. This is that hill on the north side where the Israelites would have encamped. And uh, then this is looking at Azekah. So... We're we're um, let me back this up. We're looking northeast here. Then we're looking a little north north west here. We've moved. We're moving uh, counterclockwise around around the clock to see uh, a Zika over here. And then this is the stream bed, and uh, everybody's out there looking for their five little round stones. And now these are not small. I've seen in the israel museum they're almost as big as a golf ball think about that uh they're they're very large and these were uh stones that were found in the assyrian encampments uh where the assyrians had fought the israelites around lachish and other areas so these were actually slinger stones from uh the assyrian army so these are these are quite heavy um Again, a couple of shots of Soko just to give you a, a sense of the land and what it looks like when you're thinking about it. So we're told in verse 2 that Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah. So they're encamping along that, that ridge line. And they drew up in battle away against the Philistines. So you have Israelites on one side, the valley in between, and then the uh, Philistines on the other side on Soko Ridge at, at Ephes Damim. The Philistines were told stood on the mountain on one side, Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. That's repeated. So the Holy Spirit really wants us in these three verses to make sure we understand the topography, the geography. Now why is this important? It's important because this is an east west valley that if if Israel loses control of that valley, then it's just like the valley of the Shenandoah in in, uh, in Virginia that when in the early part of the war between the states, Stonewall Jackson controlled that because if he lost control, then the federal forces could have driven all the way into the heart of the south. That's what, exactly what would have happened. If Israel loses this battle, then the Philistines are going to be able to drive all the way to Jerusalem and they will have seize complete control of everything in the south. So this is a crucial uh, strategic location and is a crucial battle. Then the writer takes four verses to describe Goliath. He could have just said, this is just one really big bad guy. But he takes painstaking detail in order to help us understand how bad Goliath was and that he is an impossible obstacle to victory. This is why this goes on for so long before they get a champion. So we're told uh, that there's a champion that went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath. So he's he's close to his hometown. That's going to become important uh, later on to understand his background. His height is six cubits and a span, which is about nine and a half feet, maybe a little more. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's extremely heavy. He had uh, bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin hanging over his back between his shoulders. Now, the staff of his spear, that's the javelin, was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and his shield-bearer went before him. So in this, I've underlined this, it emphasizes his height, that he is huge. We're going to look at this in just a minute. He's, it emphasizes the weight of the, the bronze armor that he is wearing, and the armor that's on his legs and uh and and the bronze javelin that 's between his shoulders this is all extremely heavy, and the spearhead alone weighs six hundred shekels so let 's break this down he's His height is six cubits and a span i've read it it depends on how you understand span, but the cubit was eighteen inches, so if you work it out it's between nine feet, six inches and nine feet nine inches. But when you're that tall, who's going to quibble about three inches? Especially considering the fact that that we can guess that David was average size, which for an Israelite at that period, because there's a lot of skeletons that have been dug up, and so you can measure the femurs, you can measure the uh, uh, other bones, and you can extrapolate their height based on known formula. And so David was around 5'5 to 5'7". He was probably, nothing is ever mentioned about his height, whereas Saul is the one who would logically go up against this guy, because Saul's a head and shoulders above everybody else. He is about 6'2 to 6'4. So it would be assumed that Saul would do it, but Saul doesn't have the spiritual fortitude to go into the battle. Now here's a chart showing a height comparison. Here's David's height as a young man. I think they've undercut; they, they're making him a little short. I would say he's more like about five five. But now there's a discrepancy in the in the uh, description of of uh, Goliath in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint. He's about six feet six. But for somebody who's five five going against six feet six, why do you make a much a big deal about this? In fact, there was an article that came out in the uh, ETS Journal about 10 years ago, uh, where the author was arguing why this was, was better, superior data. The problem, it, One of the problems with that is, is that when you look at the weight of the armor and the weaponry that's described here, it fits somebody who's nine and a half feet tall, not somebody who's six feet six. So, by comparison, you've got uh, this middle figure here is uh, seven feet one. That Shaq, uh Shaquille O'Neal, NBA star. Uh, the world's tallest man in medical history that's been known historically was eight feet 11. And uh, his name was Robert Wadlow. And he's not quite as tall as Goliath, who is about nine and a half feet tall. This gives you an idea of their relative foot size. The foot on the left is Goliath. What has happened here? There we go. Uh, Goliath's foot would be about almost 20 inches long. Then you have uh, the shorter version. According to the Dead Sea Scrolls, it would be about 12 inches long. Well... Frankly, that's about the size of my feet, so that's not that big a deal. Uh, Robert Wadlow, who was the tallest known human being, had a had feet that were eighteen and a half inches long. Not much different from Goliath's. David's feet would have been about nine and three tenths of an inch long, just a little over nine inches, based on um, Masoretic text, Whereas Sh- uh, Shaquille O'Neal is about 14 and 516 inches long. So Goliath had an enormous foot. Be tough to fit him out. Now, what's the background? What's his genealogy? We need to look at Ancestry.com and figure out where Goliath came from. How did this happen that we get this big guy? Is this just some anomaly? No, not at all. First of all, we have to recognize that uh, there are other giants, I don't know what I'm touching here, but there there are other giants mentioned in the scripture. In Deuteronomy 3.11, we have the reference to Og, the king of Bashan, who was one of the remnant of the giants. Now, these aren't the Nephilim. Now, Nephilim isn't a technical term. That it was a complete mistake to ever identify nephilim as a nephilim just as a term means giants or big guys or monsters uh, it, it You go back and listen to my study in Genesis chapter six. Um, they were not a specific race; they were the result the term originally applied to the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis six and when when they were talked about in later times after the flood, remember Moses writes after the flood, he uses vocabulary from that era that these guys were, these were monsters. It wasn't a specific race. That same term was also applied to the Rephaim and the Anakim because they were very tall, they were very large and so that term was applied to them as well. The Bible isn't making a claim that they're related. Now I've read numerous commentaries that make that claim, and I want to wake up, scholars. Everybody but no one is family. All of the Nephilim are killed in the flood. It's a worldwide flood. What part of that don't you understand? Nothing of them would survive the flood to have a race of descendants sometime later. So it's just modern liberal idiocy that doesn't believe the text. So you have this guy who's a Rephaim, another term just meaning he's, he's this from these giants. And he's uh, the king of Bashan, and when he dies, they bury him in his bed because there's not a casket big enough. So they bury him in his bed, and his bed, bed is described as nine cubits in length and four cubits in width, which means it's about 13 feet long and six feet wide. So uh, that's pretty good size. He wouldn't be quite that big, so he's probably somewhere around 11 feet tall, 11 to 12 feet tall. He was bigger than Goliath. Then we have this other group that's mentioned, the sons of Anak, the Anakim. They're mentioned in Numbers 13.22. Remember when Uh, the Israelites sent the 12 spies into the land, and they came back, and they were just shaking in their boots, or 10 of them were shaking in their boots. And they said, we can't do it because there's too many people. They have walled, fortified cities, and they're giants in the land. They were the sons of Anak. They're living in the land of Canaan. They were part of that Canaanite population. And so in Numbers 13.22, they're mentioned that the descendants of Anak were there uh, in the area of Hebron. Uh, <clears throat> numbers 13, thirteen twenty-eight. nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land, this is their complaint, the people who dwell in the land are strong, cities are fortified and large, and we saw the descendants of Anak there. And then in verse 33, there we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak or giants, so we were in their sight. That's their complaint. Now in Joshua 11, after the Israelites have taken Hebron, uh, we're told at that time Joshua came and cut off the Anakim uh, from the mountains. Cut off means he pretty much decimated them, although there were a few survivors. He didn't wipe them all out. And Joshua 11.22, it goes on to say, none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod. So the descendants of these giants are able to. A few are able to escape, and they go to Gath. Where's Goliath from? Goliath is from Gath. He's he's the result probably of intermarriage between some of these uh, Anakim and and Philistines. That's why he's so big. So he's got a. Um, he's armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat is 5,000 shekels of bronze. His bronze helmet would have weighed about 30 pounds. The way the helmet's described, the terminology that's used, it probably resembled the helmets of the, of the um, Assyrians, which is pictured below. You have, I have a couple of pictures on the right. And then I have a depiction from um, uh, Sennacherib uh, back in um, uh, Nineveh where they where – they in, in, uh, memorialized their battle over Lakeiche and uh, so we see their helmets there we'll see a broad, bigger picture of that later because those are uh, their, their uh, slingshot warriors so the bronze coat would have weighed 5,000 shekels which is about 150 pounds now you imagine walking around I mean I've had as much as a 75 pound backpack on but to be walking around with 150 pounds on and then you're going to fight somebody you put a 75 pound backpack on and bend over and then try to stand up you know you drop something you have to pick up your 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 water bottle or something that makes it pretty difficult so he's moving around he's got to be large and strong he has a bronze armor on his legs and the bronze javelin between his shoulders we don't know how much the 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 greaves on his leg would have weighed but it would probably have been between 20 and 30 pounds and the staff of his spear that's hanging in his back is like a weaver's beam and that probably weighed 15 pounds and the spearhead weighed 600 shekels uh, which was um, about 15 pounds so he's got some heavy armor that's uh, available so he is extremely large that it fits with the nine and a half foot tall uh, giant then we see his challenge that comes out in verse, verse 8. He stood and cried to the armies of Israel and says, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. Notice the language here. He says, Choose a man. Well, everyone proves that they're not a man. A man in this passage is revealed to be someone who isn't just a good athlete or a good warrior, but someone who understands the spiritual dimensions. What makes a man a man is ultimately his spiritual orientation. He goes on to say, if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine continued to say, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man. He wants a real man, not some metrosexual 21st century American. He wants a real man uh, that we may fight together. And what's the reaction? No men. 1 Samuel 17:11. when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. Now, that word, Hebrew word for dismayed there, shows up every time in the Old Testament that you see a population group who is being overwhelmed by superior enemy forces, and they are scared to death. And it says, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. But David's not going to be afraid. See, it, immediately next time we get into verse 12 where we introduce David, and we see the contrast between David's mentality and everybody else's mentality. And what, what fixes David's mentality, what makes David the boy a real man and everybody else a coward is that David is trusting in God. He's prepared he has been consistent in his responsible uh, in his responsibilities to protect the flock, and so God is going to advance him. And there's some great promises that we see in in the, the Psalms that emphasize this. This is uh, from Psalm three, verse six. The, the heading says that this is when David fled Absalom when he was much older, but he writes. He learned his lessons early. He says, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people. If God's going to give him victory over Goliath, God's going to give him victory over all the people that follow Absalom in his rebellion. I won't be afraid of 10,000s of people. In Psalm 56, this is a great psalm of, of trust. Uh, it's written when David is captured by the Philistines in Gath, which is later on in First Samuel. And he writes, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. That's what makes a man a man and a woman a woman, is their trust in God. And instead of giving in to fear, discouragement, depression, sorrow, sadness, they trust in God instead. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Verse 4, in God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. And then he closes by saying, In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And so we always have to remember that. It doesn't matter whether it's somebody you're having conflict with at the office, somebody in your family, uh, somebody in your neighborhood. What can they do to me? I am backed by the power of God in heaven. Psalm 27.3, David says, Though an army may encamp against me, My heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. These are great promises for us to memorize and to claim when we're facing fear. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, focus on your word to realize that often we face overwhelming circumstances and odds that are completely against us. But we know that the battle is yours and that we have to learn, like David, to trust you and to trust you in the small battles trust you in the minor issues and that builds character and strength so that when the large battles occur we can trust you without a without missing a beat father we pray that you would encourage us from what we studied this evening and as we go into this study that we will uh, gain great encouragement and a desire to emulate david in every area. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.